Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Victor Schwartz, who's the author of the book, The Great Rapture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and The Future of Humanity. Victor, that's a, an incredible title. What got you interested in writing a book along those lines? Well, uh, Alex, first, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's a very big theme. Uh, it's essentially got history. Uh, it's got the future. It tries to learn from the past and basically asks the question, what worked in the past? Whether you were Russian Empire, Chinese Empire, Russian Empire, why have you collapsed over 500 years? Why did England had industrial revolution and why the West have succeeded? What were the recipe for success? But the book goes beyond that and asks essentially whether the same recipe of success that ensured West dominance are still applicable in the modern financialized, asset-based and information age. And the key question or key takeaway from the book is that do you need to be free in order to be innovative, inventive, prosperous and wealthy? The answer over the last 500 years clearly is in affirmative. In other words, you must be free. If you're not free, you're going to go, you're going to fall. You're going to have a sort of the same experience as Ming dynasty had or Qing dynasty or Romanov dynasty had in Russia. But is it still true in the modern age? Now, the reason I decided to write this book is that there is a lot of books out there that basically describe success formula in the industrial age. Why Nations Fail, uh, Asimoglu, Robinson, all of that. Uh, there is many, many books on this topic. There is also a lot of taught books that are going into historical analysis of uh, what happened to China, what happened to Russia, what happened to the West. There is a lot of technological books that basically paint the picture of what's going to happen over the next 20 30, 50 years ago. But what I found, technological books are not really related to the books on economics and finance that discusses why certain countries have succeeded. They also do not relate to historical outlook, why certain countries have and civilizations have failed. So in other words, that, that there was nothing that actually combines, in my view, right now in the marketplace, areas like history, uh, economics, politics, market, both backward-looking and forward-looking, even though there, is a pl- there are plenty of books which are incredibly good disca- describing and discussing each one of those elements. So it was my humble attempt to try to combine all of those elements together and also try to translate it. What does it mean for the markets? What does it mean for people? What does it mean for money? What does it mean for economic systems? I've got to go back to something that you mentioned very early on in the conversation is the definition of being free. And that means many things to many different people, right? Freedom is is very different in different uh, countries and different religions even. I'm curious to get a feeling in terms of your definition of free in terms of this book and and your research. You're completely right, Alex. There is no single definition of freedom. Is it a community freedom? Is it a personal freedom? Is it a freedom to infringe on other people's rights or other community rights? What essentially I meant by freedom is ability to explore, ability to ask questions, 
uh, ability to cooperate and communicate with other people around the world. One of those things book describes how Chinese age of exploration ended in 1430s. After that, China stopped exploring. They basically waited for other people to come to China. That by itself deprived China of many opportunities, not just to discover new worlds, but also develop different technologies. The same would apply to, say, to the Ottoman Empire, when they've decided that education should be religiously based rather than circular. And again, that was different in the 12th century Muslim world, which was incredibly progressive. But by the time we get to 13th, 14th century, all of that disappeared. And so the system was hostile to education, literacy, publishing, printing. The same applies to to, to Russia. It was based increasingly on the serfdom, serfdom agricultural-based economy. It discouraged curiosity. It discouraged education. It discouraged questioning the system. Uh, And so freedom could be many things, but the most important areas, to my mind, ability to explore, ability to communicate, ability to question. And there is no question that there is no doubt that the West was much more in tune with that philosophy than either China or no India, nor the motherland, nor the Muslim lands, nor 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 Russia. But definition of freedom also changes. There are boundaries to that freedom in different ages and in different generations. Uh, those boundaries were very very different, and something that we would regard as a complete unfreedom or stifling conformity is something that those societies believe to be important. So it's not that it's not changing, it does change in flux, but there are essential ingredients that some societies have maintained uh, and other societies have resisted. I'm curious around what actually are the ingredients that change the way people uh, operate as as human beings in in their free societies, right? You talked a lot there about the ability to question and I think if you look at the, the marketplace today, particularly in the Western countries, there seems to be a bit of a pushback and a real challenge around uh, questioning of authority, questioning of elites, questioning of experts. And I'm really curious around, is this something that we've seen historically through time? Yes, we have. The, the way I usually look at things is that there are times in our history where there is a societal cohesion. Uh, in other words, people generally speaking agree what are the limits of freedom? What are the limits of questioning? How far you can go? How much do we need to work together? What areas are regarded as a taboo and therefore cannot be encroached upon? It flexes. And some, and, and some generations and some periods are much more conservative. Uh, other generations are much freer uh, and, and, less, and less susceptible to those restrictions. So, for example, from mid-1940s to mid-1960s, For about 20 years, there was a very, very strong consensus in the Western world. And that consensus was organized around limited questioning of the state. It was organized around the belief that state mostly does good things rather than bad things. It was a period of questioning private sector, whether in fact private sector delivers what private sector promises to deliver to the society. It was also a period of uniformity. In other words, it was a period where any deviation from the norm, either politically, sexually, socially, culturally, was aggressively discouraged, that people were encouraged to be very much alike. And that applied to everywhere, from Australia uh, to to US, to UK, to France. It was a very similar sort of period of of relative conformity. 
But it also was a period of incredible inventiveness, incredible uh, strides made, both in, in education, uh, in spending, in means of communication and transportation. So it doesn't mean that if you are relatively conformist society, that you actually discourage any exploration or you discourage any uh, questioning of uh, sort of existing systems. So that was an example of a society that was much more conformist. Between ni- mid-1960s and 1980, there was upheaval because the new baby boomers generation Basically, we're arguing that we want freedom, choice, efficiency. Don't tell me who I should marry or can marry, cannot marry. Don't tell me I can't leave my country. Don't tell me who I should be working for. Don't tell me I'm not allowed to change my job. I ought to have degree of freedom. And so it took about 15 years, maybe even 20 years, for the new consensus to emerge. That new consensus in early 80s was very much based around the concepts of freedom. Now, however, what we discovered over the last 10, 15 years, freedom has side effects. And those side effects are environmental damage. Those side effects are extreme income and wealth inequalities. Because baby boomers were primarily interested in opportunities, not the outcomes. I give you the opportunity, but it's up to you to deliver the outcome. So it actually leads to many negative consequences. Financialization, for example, is another major negative consequence uh, of baby boomers' world. And so what happened over the last 10 years or so, we've gone into another crisis, crisis of confidence. What is the state for? What is the private sector for? Uh, What are the societies? What should be the right way or the right balance between community and individual rights? And if history is any guide, we will have probably at least another decade to go through, at least before a new consensus will emerge. Do you have any particular research to understand when does this crisis of confidence you know, pick up? Is it around, for example, inequality? Once inequality starts to pick up, people feel that they've been left out, they've got nothing to lose, and then they start to rattle the the, the cages of the existing systems. Again, as with everything in life, there is actually a lot of books uh, on a subject, particularly around demographics and generational change. This is known, uh, one of the best books, probably called Force Turning Point. And that is going through various generations of Americans and trying to trace when those changes occur. Now, it's much harder to determine why they occur at this particular point in time, because some generations do not uprise against their predecessors. For example, if you think of GI generation, which was born sort of in early 1900s onwards, they were very aggressive shapers of society. But the silent generation that followed them, those born sort of from late 20s to mid 40s, we're not really rattling. They're just following in the footsteps of GI generation. And they effectively were their wingmen. If you think of baby boomers, that was a very dramatic shift from GI generation as well as silent generation. Uh, And if you think of X generation after baby boomers, those born sort of from mid 60s to about 1980, uh, they were the wingmen of the baby boomers. They broadly had a very similar outlook. But millennial and Z generation, again, is a massive shift from what occurred in the past. To me, there are a couple of things that drives it. One of them is technology and evolution of technology. That's one of your key drivers determining what happens going forward. The other one is sort of economic and financial policies that you pursue. But technology, in my view, really is the dominant answer. And when people say, what about a war? 
What about big breaks like uh, Second World War, First World War? What about the Great Depression of 1930s? Uh, a lot of it goes back to technology and macroeconomic influences. Every time you go from one wave of technology to another, and we had a first industrial revolution leading to, so 1848 revolutions, for example, we had a second industrial revolution, which ended with a great war. First World War and a second world war basically was just one war. And now we have information uh, revolution. So I don't view wars by themselves as a cause. War or depressions are reflection of your technology, how do you react to technology, and how you structure your economic and financial system to cope with changes uh, that are occurring. To me, that's what drives these massive gaps uh, between generations. I, I think we probably should go into technology a little bit more in detail. And I think one of the things that came alongside technology was the ability to disseminate information much quicker than ever before. There was seen to be a lot of hope that came from technology in giving people voices, allowing people to go and do research more and more. And that was supposed to be really beneficial. Uh, we're now seeing a period where all this supposed opening up of technology and information actually now being contracted. How much do you think that that will play a role in the current generation that we're seeing coming through? Once again, it's not, it's not unusual because every change is disruptive. The whole idea of revolution is to disrupt the status quo. That's the idea. You can't have technological progression. You can't have technological revolution if you want to maintain the status quo. It's an impossibility. And so if you were going in the first industrial revolution, which you had, which was very narrowly based in late 18, early 19th century, it was essentially based around steam, around cotton, around railways, very narrowly based. But it was still very disruptive. And so if you would have found a bunch of Luddites just about to smash a loom, and if you would have gone to those bunch of Luddites and said, uh, you know what, don't worry about it. In 30, 40 years time, everything will be fine. They probably will think you're joking because 30 or 40 years was the entire life. So why were Luddites smashing our looms? Were they crazy? No, they were not crazy. They understood the disruption that will cause to their life. You had a very similar disruptive process occurring when large factories started to appear. Suddenly, neither aristocracy, nor peasants, nor workers knew what exactly are they? What, what's their social responsibility? When suddenly everybody was becoming an employee uh, of a large factories. And we have something similar today. So in other words, what is the role of a journalist? Now, the role of a journalist in 1980s and even into 90s was very, very different to the role of a journalist today. The same applies to performance, whether you are a singer, whether you are streaming a movie. The role of actors, very different. Think of trading on New York Stock Exchange. Most houses only 15, 20 years ago used to have at least three, 400 traders uh, in New York. Today, they probably have only five. And those traders have very, very different skill base. What happened to the other traders that are no longer with us? What do they do? How they retool themselves? You can also discuss things like dissemination of information or social networks, as you said. Social networks are ability to communicate, but it has many other implications, uh, whether it's for politics, whether it's for societal cohesion. And so every single one of those revolutions was disrupting. The only difference is the scale, the scope, every time gets bigger. So in the first industrial revolution, very limited parts of society at that stage were impacted. Second industrial revolution was much bigger. 
this is your chemical industry, pharmaceutical industry, electricity, refrigeration, much, much wider. Information age is even wider still. I keep quoting McKinsey report, but I thought it was very well put that in their view, the information age disruption has a waterfront 300 times the waterfront of industrial revolution and the speed of change 10 times faster, which means the impact on the society is roughly 3,000 times the impact of industrial revolution. Again, not unusual. Every time we go through those cycles, the waterfront gets wider, it gets deeper, and it gets faster. And so the disruption that causes society causes uh, to functioning of capital and capital markets, uh, causes to functioning of labor and how labor is utilized and how it is valued changes uh, very, very dramatically. And we saw some of that already in the last 10, 15 years. Remember, information age picked up in early 80s, but it really started to have a major impact around late 90s. And the impact accelerated even more over the last 10 or 15 years. The next 10 or 15 years will be even more disruptive. And it won't be so much based on manipulating digital information, like ordering a pizza or downloading movies or trading on New York Stock Exchange. It will be much more based on the physical matter. This will be disintermediation of atoms. In other words, factories will disappear. Supply and value chains will disappear. You're going to have major changes in jobs and professions, including plumbers and electricians and truck drivers. You're going to have displacement of postdocs uh, from university campuses. Some of, most of the university campuses probably will not even survive, and they will not be needed for what they needed today. You will find robotics, automation, alternative energy platforms, alternative transportation platforms will proliferate. They already are, but they will proliferate a, a lot more. And so the next stage of disruption will be even stronger. The first part of information age from 1980 to 2000, it was basically PC-based, enterprise-based, information-based. The second stage over the last 20 years was all about manipulation of digits. The next stage is manipulation of physical matter, not just the digits of information. And that's going to be even more disruptive. And so the question that the book raises is that how do we people will be utilized? How would the human capital change? How would capital function in this world? And what lies on the other side of the black hole? How would we describe that system that is probably within 20, maybe 25 years from us? How will it function? Well, really, one of the things that comes to my mind is the displacement of people and the disruption that comes alongside that. We have seen a move towards the left and this acceptance of universal basic income and other sorts of uh, fiscal policy solutions to try and help people through this transition. Will we see that happen even more? Is that going to ramp up even further as people become more and more concerned about their future? Absolutely. This is what we describe in the book. I describe in the book as Fujiwara effect. What we have, we have two very powerful hurricanes. One is technological innovation and information age. The other one is financialization. Now, financialization is a self-inflicted wound, is what we've decided to do in order to compensate for lack of our productivity. In other words, starting in 1980, we've decided that even though we're no longer as productive, we deserve the money we get, and we want to have higher wealth. The only way to do that was through financialization and asset classes. And so if you go back to 50s, 60s, and 70s, we only needed $1 of debt or liquidity for a dollar of GDP. Today, we need in some countries five, six dollars. 
Now, what it basically means, we're all hooked on a drug, and that drug is called assets. So your decision to spend or consume or decision to save, corporate decision to invest or to do share buyback are very much dependent on asset classes. That in turn thrusted central banks into the mainstream because from now on, central banks' responsibility is to ensure that uh, volatility of asset prices does not jump because the impact on asset classes, the impact on uh, economic outcomes will, will be tremendous. And so what we are, are looking at is financialization driving our economies, they're driving volatilities, they're driving cost of capital to ever lower level because we need to generate more capital than we need. As a result, low cost of capital spurring the um, information age even stronger and even faster. As it continues to accelerate more and more as we're progressing forward, what starts to happen is that we start disintermediating. We start disintermediating people from fruits of their labor. We start disintermediating corporates from their supply chains, from their brands, from their distribution. We start disintermediating capital. And people inevitably feel that their marginal utility, uh, what they add, their marginal pricing power continues to fall. Corporates feel that they are facing something unusual or uncertain. And so the result is people are priced. They say, I need to do something about it. My future is not as good as I thought it will be. And by the way, I think my future will get even worse uh, as I progress forward and my kids will be worse. And so it's a mixture of financialization and technological evolution and how financialization accelerating technological change that is driving Maslovian disappointment. And that's in turn is driving uh, populism that drives all sorts of social outcomes. So one of the things that's quite ironic is that this the role of the central bank is to try and suppress volatility, support asset prices. And at the same time, uh, the central banks are now actually really promoting inequality because the amount of people that actually own financial assets is quite a small proportion of the port of the population. And then the central bank is trying to sort of help out in quotations, but at the same time, they're actually propagating the problem. They are. And so one of the problems with financialization itself is that instead of generating inflation, it actually generates disinflation. Instead of widening the growth rates, it's actually narrowing the growth rates. Instead of reducing income and wealth inequalities, it's actually magnifies income and wealth inequalities. And that was a reason why over the last five, six years, I've been advising a shift in policy from monetary much more towards fiscally based policies. And the reason for that is very simple. Monetary policy basically works through what I call cloud of finance. Cloud of finance have only limited relationship to the underlying real economies where real human beings reside. In the olden days, the real economy was a dog and a financial economy was a tail. Today, it's the other way around. Financial economy is a dog and a real economy is a tail. Uh, and so the result is that uh, the entire purpose of central bank policies is to ensure that the dog is not sitting on the tail to ensure that this massive cloud of finance, which is five, 10 times larger than the underlying real economies, does not misbehave to a stage that it actually causes real problem for people living on the ground, you know, going to their work, cooking meals, taking their children to school. 
Now, the problem was that the bigger this cloud of finance gets, the less of that money ends up on the ground. Instead, it goes into Picasso paintings, into Ferrari cars, it goes into Bitcoin. Uh, and so people on the ground basically said, I can see a lot of capital out there, which is true. We have five, 10 times more capital than we need. But that capital is not where I want it to be. And so what is happening is increasingly is that the government, uh, the, the society, I should say, telling the government, we want you to bring this money to where we want to have it. And, and so what the government increasingly will be doing, and that's already started in 2012, so it's not anything new, the idea of fiscal austerity died about a decade ago. Nobody is going to do another Greece ever again. Nobody is going to do another Portugal uh, ever again. So the idea of austerity has been dead for many, many years now. But what coronavirus has done is massively accelerated that shift towards fiscal policy. And the government increasingly will be doing what people want to be done. And that is taking the capital and allocating it to the areas on the ground rather than keeping it in a cloud of finance. That means the degree of government regulation, the degree of government coercion, the degree to which the government will be trying to co-opt our private sector to perform the function that society wants to be performed or will continue to escalate. Eventually, fiscal and monetary policy will start functioning in unison. So in other words, the government spending will be no longer generating debt. At that point in time, we don't need the bond market. And the bond market as an institution probably will uh, disintegrate or disappear completely. So to answer your question, it is this huge Fujiwara effect, the merger and reinforcement of financialization and technology is driving discontent on the ground, is driving Maslovian disappointment. And what's happening, people are demanding that the state needs to redress it. And now, whether you're right wing or left wing, whether you are Republican or Democrat, whether you're labor or conservative, whether you're liberal or labor, it doesn't matter. Everybody is now on the same page. And therefore, the role of the state over the next 10 years will continue going up. And it's not just universal basic income guarantee. It's going to be greater investment in healthcare, greater investment in uh, basic and fundamental R&D. There is going to be greater investment in green energy. It's going to be a variety of areas where government will be involved. I'm really curious as to where the end game is for that, though, because ultimately governments are pretty stretched on their budgets today. Uh, and obviously, you mentioned that the bond market will be dead as they just end up uh, really just printing money effectively to pay for uh, a lot of these new initiatives. But where, where does this end up? Where does this end up for financial markets? The thing is, uh, a lot of people said, my God, how are we going to repay? We have four or $500 trillion piece of paper globally. Well, the answer, it will never be repaid. And none of that is real. When people say, how are we going to service commitments? I usually answer, have you heard of BOJ? Have you heard of Federal Reserve? What, what world do you live in? And so it doesn't apply to everybody. But for most countries that have monetary sovereignty, in other words, they have they essentially print their own money, uh, they use their money, and they largely finance everything with their own money. So long as those countries also have some solid institutions of state, so you don't want to have Kirshners and Maduras and Mugabes running around the place. And so long as you don't have severe capacity bottlenecks, then I wouldn't call it the printing of money, I will call it financing government spending. And that financing government spending uh, would imply that you're not going to rely uh, as much uh, on taxation for raising money 
Uh, instead, taxation will be used primarily as a balancing item within the economy. And taxation will be used in order to redress inequalities and not necessarily to raise the money. Or taxation will be used in order to co-op private sector or convince private sector to do certain things that private sector otherwise might not have uh, wanted to do. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's terrible. Government is inefficient. Well, do you think private sector was efficient in the last 20 or 30 years? Do you think private sector has done a good job in 1920s, 1930s? So if you go back to earlier macroeconomists in 40s, 50s, and 60s, they did not believe that private sector is always better. They did not believe that public sector is always automatically inefficient. That idea of private sector primacy only came with the baby boomers uh, at the end of 1970s. And that's what led to Milton Friedman becoming a famous man and Ronald Coase becoming a famous man. That's what led to the power of Ronald Reagan and Maggie, Maggie Thatcher and Bob Hawke and the rest of them. But that idea that whatever the problem is, private sector solution is the best, has died. It's no longer with us. And now it's a new world. People want public sector to become much more proactive as you go forward. Now, if you continue down that path, what lies on the other side, so to speak, of black hole? Well, uh, unlike previous occasions, we actually have a set technology and financialization working at the same time. Over time, what will occur? Central banks will develop digital currencies, already doing it. As soon as central bank digital currencies proliferate, commercial banks will run out of road. What do, what do, in fact, commercial banks do? Because central banks are already determining price of money. They're trying to determine quantity of money. We already have surplus of capital, not shortage of capital. That capital is allocated according to social needs, not DCF frameworks. And at the same time, central banks will have a capacity to accept deposits and do direct lending. Sometimes, even today, they're already doing direct lending to businesses of the main street. At that point in time, uh, why do you need commercial banks? What do they do? Historically, commercial banks multiplied the money or credit through the economy. If that is no longer the case, do you need commercial banks? What is the essence of money at that point in time? What does the money represent? At the same time, the jobs will gradually be disappearing. And as the jobs disappear or change, they already twisted and turned anywhere to do with digits and information over the last 20 years. The next 20 years, it will impact our workers in the factories. It will impact uh, you know, the plumbers, the construction workers. It will affect, uh, later on, it will affect postdocs and PhD in computer science. That's going to be your next level beyond the next 20 years. And so the question that becomes, what is the value of human contribution? What is the value of labor contribution? A lot of people say, you know what? We've gone through all of this many, many times before. Uh, it's not any different now. Uh, in my view, it's wrong. It's wrong in two areas. Area number one, people who say that don't feel the pain of people who actually had to go through this process. They're not Luddites. They don't know what Luddites felt when they were smashing the looms back in the early 1800s. And it so happens it's our generations that actually have a fortune or misfortune to be experiencing those changes. The second thing, what people tend to forget, is 3,000 times the impact of information age. You could move a guy from a buggy to a truck driver, but when you don't need a truck driver, what are the things that particular person will be able to do? And so, so you reach the stage that increasingly, not just routine, but also non-routine functions will become not our area of expertise, so to speak. And if that is the case, what is a job? What is a wage? And so one of the things uh, we discussed in the book 
that it is quite conceivable that in the next 25 years or so, if you look into 18, no, no, 2040s, grandchildren might say, my God, my grandfather was a slave. Uh, he had to go to the office every day. Could you believe it? I don't know how he lived. It was such a bad time. And so would people find alternative way of feeling satisfied? Well, the answer is yes. This is a question that Karl Marx raised in 1850s. What will happen if productivity actually raises to a level that we no longer have slavery of labor? Same applies to John Maynard Keynes in 1930s, when he expected that within four generations, we will reach a stage that our biggest concern will be how to feel happy and satisfied. The same applies to Peter Drucker in 1980s, 1990s. So whether it's Karl Marx, whether it's Drucker, whether it's John Maynard Keynes, it's the same argument, whether it's a Marxist or not Marxist, it's the same argument. And so to me, when people say, how are we going to repay it? The, the books are stretched. For most countries, they're not stretched. I don't even know what it means to be stretched. Now, if you want to rebase the economies and go back to liberal capitalism, you can do it. All you need to do is to step back and allow money supply and nominal GDP to coalesce. Because over the last four decades, money supply grew three times faster than nominal GDP. The difference between those two lines are 401ks, are pension portfolios, are real estate prices, are basically asset prices. And so if you say you want to converge those two lines, you have to understand the social and political consequence of doing it. So going back and trying to be prudent is not possible without a revolution. That's your, that's your recipe for pitchforks. It's just not possible. And so you must go forward. And if you continue going forward, there are two or three ways of doing it. One of them, continue to rely on monetary levers. That will be the recipe for steeper disinflation, negative interest rates everywhere, rising income and wealth inequalities, and societal disintegration. Your other alternative will be to fix towards fiscal policy or mix fiscal and monetary together. That still leads you with a disinflation longer term. That still will leave you with disintermediation of labor but it slows the pace at which you deteriorate. And as you slow that pace, societies can coalesce better, and therefore social and other pressures uh, will become less pronounced. Not dissimilar the way civil rights acts and a great society in the US in late 60s started to diffuse gradually uh, 1970s. So you need to have those uh, right tools. Now, beyond just slowing the pace of change, you can argue money and the essence of money 10, 15 years from now will be very different. Bond markets probably won't exist. Capital markets probably won't exist in the current form. What we think of money will be very, very different. How we earn money will be very, very different. And that's why beyond sort of 10, 15 years, sort of 20 years and beyond, it's very difficult to say exactly what it would look like. In the meantime, investment managers or anybody who manages money yeah. living in a twilight zone, they still have liberal capitalist tools. They still have liberal capitalism thinking. They still have markets that were created through the periods of liberal capitalism. But the, neither the economy nor society any longer on the same page. And so you live in a twilight zone, and that's what's making uh, managing money so complex. I've got to ask you around sort of where do corporates now fit into this whole space because you sort of gave a bit of context earlier around corporates being pushed to do more. 
we've seen a movement away from shareholder primacy to now really thinking about the whole stakeholder values. And we saw a real transition in October 2019 of the business roundtable that was really looking to push that. What does the corporate of the future look like if this is the way it's transitioning? Well, the question is whether corporates are needed at all, because the whole essence of corporates uh, is to reduce transaction costs, to accumulate capital and to reduce uh, or enable you to control the risks. If uh, technology and financialization continuously reduce the transaction cost to zero, if gradually everything becomes free or near free, which will be the answer over the next 20, 25 years, almost everything will gravitate on a marginal sense to zero and then gradually average sense to zero, then you're not really have an argument of transaction costs uh, as a major issue. If accumulation of capital was a concern, that was a concern when there was a shortage of capital. As I said earlier on, we're actually drowning in excess capital. It's not fairly distributed. It's not equally distributed. But we're drowning in excess capital. And that's why society as a whole is demanding that this capital needs to be relocated uh, in a different form to what it is now. But really, attracting capital is not a major, a major issue. And so why do we need corporates for because corporates are very Stalinist. Most of them are very Stalinist, top-down organization. It's a very communist part of the capitalist world, so to speak. And so, and so why do we need corporates? Why do we need command and control system of corporates when the future is bottom-up, not top-down? And, and the answer, we don't. And so one of the projections in the book is that within two decades, probably we won't have corporates. The way I basically describe it is that a bunch of people will get together with an interesting idea. Uh, they will explore it. There will be like flashes in the sky. They will last 6, 12, 18 months, and they will disappear to be replaced by other flashes in the sky. And this idea of a corporate that survives for hundreds of years and live in its own name will just become obsolete. So again, just like investment managers have a problem, how do you manage markets? that are no longer reflective of liberal capitalism and investment strategies that you have, whether it's how you trade the stocks, where you, how you value the stock, whether it's mean reversion or lack of mean reversion. So that's where investment for corporates, it's exactly the same thing. They're seeing the shelf life of brands uh, shrinking. They're, they're seeing them changing and altering constantly. They're losing control over their products. They're losing control over their distribution system and how you distribute the products. Suddenly, in the past, they would have had maybe only two or three competitors. Suddenly, they wake up and they might have 100 competitors nibbling away at different parts of the business that they're running. And large corporates are essentially, as I said, they are Stalinist institutions. They're not very good at adapting. They're very good at industrial age command and control system, efficiency system, cost control system. And that is not applicable to information age as we go forward. And so what's going to happen, some corporates will reinvent themselves, but most of them do not. And even some of the information age corporates like Google, uh, like Facebook, like Alibaba, like Tencent, like Baidu, some of those might not even be around five, 10 years from now. In other words, the corporates only have two or three lives at most. Then they fossilize. Uh, and two lives is actually a lot. Sometimes they only have one life and they fossilize. And they, for the ability to change becomes almost non-existent. And so the interesting thing, the more we create environment, which is not dependent on shortage of capital, 
which is not dependent on uh, sort of physical industrial age assets, which is not dependent on market setting prices, whether it's for capital or goods or whatever that is, uh, that is being disintermediated and attacked in so many fronts, the more we're going to see new types of corporates appearing. But those new types of corporates will have a much shorter life. Their CEOs will have a much shorter lifespan. And, and so that's your longer-term projection. Your, your, your shorter-term projection, the, the societies are demanding certain things from corporates. They're basically demanding what I, what I describe as equality, fairness, and no waste. And that goes back to you asked business roundtable a question. What is the purpose of corporate? If you think of it from 1980s, it was shareholder value. That was the only, that was the only purpose. But in 50s and 60s, it was very, very different. It was about society. It was about product. It was about contributing. If you think of the new statement they've created in 2019, it was much closer to 60s. And yes, right now it's a talk because CEOs don't want to be a weeping boy for everything that's gone wrong over the last three decades. But societies are insisting on certain things. So things like share buybacks, I think they will disappear. Things like a CEO compensation being more than like 50 times average wages, they're going to disappear. I think the pressure on ESG, whether it's a pollution or social consequences of what you do, will continue to escalate. So corporates would need to adjust to all of these changes as we go forward. But as I said the longer term perspective uh, probably will not involve corporates at all. Well, Victor, that's been an incredible conversation. Thank you very much for your time. And you've left uh, the audience with a lot to think about. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.